Welcome to Mountain Grace, the weekly sermon from me, John White, priest at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Camillus, New York. This week we're looking at Psalm 14 and the sense of despair and how Jesus might have an answer for us. This is the 14th Psalm from the St. Helena Psalter. The foolish have said in their hearts, there is no God. All are corrupt and commit abominable acts. There is none who does any good. The Holy One looks down from heaven upon us all to see if there is any who is wise, if there is one who seeks after God. Every one has proved faithless. All alike have turned bad. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have they no knowledge, all those evildoers, who eat up my people like bread and do not call upon God? See how they tremble with fear because God is in the company of the righteous. Their aim is to confound the plans of the afflicted, but God is their refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of the people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel be glad. Please be seated. So I, I said this at 8 o'clock, so I'll share it with you. A fun fact from today's readings, Psalm 14 that we read today is almost exactly the same as Psalm 53. I don't know if you know that, but it was so good they put it in there twice. I know, right? Because, you know, the Orthodox, they have Psalm 151. Maybe we could get rid of 53 and add that one. We still have 150. I don't know. Anyway, I didn't put together the Bible. It's not my fault. So this past week, this past week, um, of course, included the 11th of September, 9-11. And as probably most of you, it's hard to, to forget what this is, the anniversary of when we think back to that day 18 years ago, which is almost astounding for me to can contemplate that it's been 18 years. But that, that day for most people is an indelible part of our memory in the same way that for some of you, the, the assassinations of, of Robert Kennedy or John Kennedy or Martin Luther King is, you know where you were when you heard that news or if, if some of you have been around a long time, what, if you remember when you heard the news of Pearl Harbor. I don't know if anybody here remembers that. But um, these events that come up in our lives, we, we, they're like imprinted on us because they are so impactful and they're so shocking. 
And, and I know many people have, have stories they can share from that day. Um, but I will tell you that, that on 9-11, for the most part, for most of the day, I was blissfully unaware of what was happening. It was, it was my day off. I didn't have to go to work, so I didn't have to turn on the car radio. I was sitting at home, and I don't like to have the radio or TV on at home. I like quiet. And so I was at home, and I made a lovely breakfast, and I cleaned the house, and got it all straightened up. And in those days, I lived in Portland, Oregon. So um, not only was it sort of later in the morning, but it, there's a three-hour difference. So, so even by the time I got up, most of the events of 9-11 had, had already occurred, and I, I had no idea. And in those days, I worked as um, a volunteer at the museum, at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. I was a, a docent. I was a tour guide. They have a submarine like a real submarine. I was a tour guide on the submarine. And we had a, I had a shift that morning at 10 o'clock. So after I made my breakfast and cleaned the house and walked the dog, and, and it was a beautiful day in Portland, just like it was in New York. And I started driving in to the museum. And on the radio, I usually listen to NPR. And so on the radio, there was these people talking about, you know, making sure the city is secure and we don't think there's any problems and, and sort of trying to figure out if this was an issue in Portland. And I have to be honest, at first I thought it was a radio drama of some sort because I'm totally unaware of what's happening until I realized that it's, it's the mayor and the chief of police and they're having a press conference and I'm, I'm befuddled because they're not explaining why They've interrupted the normal programming to have the police chief and the mayor on and talking about securing the city. I have no idea what's going on. And I get to the museum and I check in and I go to the break room where, where we would sort of gather. And of course, probably like many of you, everyone was sitting around the television just in shock. And, and since they played it over and over again, I quickly became aware of, of what was happening, and I, I couldn't believe my own eyes. I mean, I'd, I'd been to those buildings. I, I, you know, I'd gone there, not recently, but, but, and you know, at the beginning of Barney Miller, they're like there. It's like an indelible mark. And it's hard to imagine that they're, they're just gone. And at that time, we weren't really sure how many people might have gotten out. How many people might have been trapped in there? Maybe tens of thousands of people. And we didn't know, it's hard to remember now, but we didn't know that it was just that day. We didn't know if there were later things coming. We didn't know if it was going to happen again tomorrow or later that day or, or if this was the start of something much, much, much bigger. We were, we were lost in unknowing. And as I sat there and I watched it, probably like, like many of you, I felt... Shock, of course. I felt disbelief. I felt fear. I felt helplessness. We were sort of all being sort of sucked into this, this vortex of feeling overwhelmed and unable to cope with what was happening. Right? Even though what was happening was thousands of miles from where I was, it still felt personal. I felt individually affected and, and threatened, even though I, I really wasn't, right? And, and I, 
And that, those memories come up every year around that time. We, it was 9-11 on Wednesday this year, and we remembered it at our, our Wednesday service as well. And so I always kind of am thinking about that this time of year. And as I was reflecting on my, my initial reactions and how I felt on that day, I, I began to sort of recognize that some of those feelings are with me now. I, I have a sense of, of anxiety and a sense of helplessness, helplessness at big things that are happening that seem far away and yet feel personally impactful. I mean, uh, aside from the politics, which I don't find amenable at the moment, but aside from that, there are the issues of global warming, you know, climate change that is having this, this huge effect on our world right now, and yet there are people who, who deny its reality, and there's, and there's a sense that how do we begin to even make a huge enough impact on that to make a difference, you know, can, if I give up a plastic straw, is that really going to help? You know, and I think there's that same sense of helplessness in the face of that. And there's, there's the rise of, of nationalism across the world, you know, uh, repressive, tyrannical governments in countries that we used to think of as, as democracies, of places of hope, and they're becoming places ruled by, by fear. And, and I see some dangerous signs of that here, and that makes me anxious and worried. And I have, I have a five-year-old, and I'm wondering, what, what is the world that he will live in at 52 when he's my age? What, when am I leaving him? And I see the reemergence of things that I thought were, were put away forever, like white supremacy, you know, open hatred of minorities uh, amongst people with real power, and that, that scares me. And so I have this overwhelming sense that is so much like that feeling that I had on 9-11 that I don't know what to do. I don't know how to react. And it feels so overwhelming. And, and these words of the psalm, you know, we, we, there's corruption. and There's like movie stars going to jail because they're bribing colleges to take their kids. And the other institutions that are supposed to stand up for what's, what's good and what's right are, are racked with scandals, the the church, you know, no one trusts the church anymore. And why would you, after what's happened in the Roman Catholic Church and, and what we see in the Southern Baptist Church, and our church is not immune from those things either. I mean, not our congregation, I hope, but, you know, the wider Episcopal Church has issues. Government doesn't feel like it's there to, to make a positive difference in people's lives. Everyone feels like they're, they're on the take. There's income inequality. No one can get a fair shake in it. It just feels so much, and the words of the psalm capture all are corrupt and commit abominable acts. There is none who does any good. Everyone has proved faithless. All alike have turned bad. There is no one who does good. No, not one. And I feel that resonating. And... And I think when we are faced with that, it's so easy to turn to cynicism or apathy, to turn our backs on the whole thing and just take care of number one. But I'm also a person of faith. And when I, I hear and, and think about the stories of Jesus, 
I'm pretty sure that the example of Jesus is not to descend into apathy and cynicism and to turn our backs on the problems. Because, because the world that Jesus lived in was also beset with overwhelming problems. And, and I think there must be another way. And then, then, you know, this week, at the same time that I'm having these, these memories of 9-11 and this sort of sense of anxiety about the condition of the world, there were, there were other sort of small events unfolding in our lives. We, there was a PTA meeting at school, and, and then we did a, I did a funeral yesterday for Bob Harold, who was a member here, a lovely little service at uh, the Veterans Cemetery. And, and yesterday, my, my family participated in, in a cleanup over at the Split Rock Quarry. Now, most of you probably have heard of the least of the Split Rock Quarry. I live right by it. We go in there all the time. There's some trails. It's a beautiful sort of spot. And there's uh, the remains of an old rock crusher from when it was a quarry. And most of you know the story that they had turned it into an ammunition plant. In fact, it was the largest ammunition plant in the world at the time. And it, it blew up and killed a lot of people. Fortunately, the factory blew up, but not the warehouse, because the warehouse had a million and a half tons of explosives. That's three times the explosive power of Hiroshima, which means there, there would be no Syracuse today if that warehouse had gone up. But anyway, it's, it's sort of a huge area, hundreds of acres. It's empty, and it's easily accessible, and there's lots of young people go in there, and they do the kind of fun things that we used to do when we were young people, and there were no grown-ups to tell us what to do. And it's a mess. I mean, it's a mess. And so they had this massive cleanup where volunteers came in and, and they gave away pizza and t-shirts and there were kids and families and they were, they were picking up stuff and there were prizes. My daughter won second prize in the how many shotgun shells can you pick up contest. She picked up like 150. Uh, first prize was a, a little girl who picked up 470. That's a lot of shotgun shells. But anyway, the place is a mess. And so there's this sense that we wanted to kind of clean it up and make it a little nicer. And when I think about that cleanup and I think about the PTA meeting where, you know, a group of parents, Onondaga Road is a great school. West Genesee is a great school district. I know some of you went to West Hill, sorry. Um, that's also a great school district. High taxes, but a great school district. Um, no industry. Anyway, West Genesee is a great school district, and you know, we moved from a place where, where the schools really struggled, and it's amazing to live in this place with this fantastic support of education and learning programs and everything that the schools here have to offer. And yet, even in the midst of that, there are parents who are willing to come together, they give their time to make it that much better. How can we take this really excellent program that we have at this school and make it even better, more enriching, more impactful, right? And we, we did this, this funeral where we said goodbye to a, a quiet and dignified man who, who didn't do anything heroic or famous, and yet the legacy of the love that he left behind was evident in, in his family who had gathered to say goodbye. And I think... When we look at this story of Jesus, not so much what he has to say to the Pharisees, which, which is important, but, but their complaint is that Jesus spends his times with, with the sinners and the outcasts. Like, how can he be with those people? 
And, and I think when I reflect on these small victories, these small moments of the PTA meeting and the cleanup at the quarry and even the funeral, I think there's the answer to the existential problem that I was facing. And, and as usual, Jesus' example points the way. Because it's in these small individual acts at our immediate level with our neighbors and friends and the people who share this community with us that when we, we engage together with them to make our community just that much better, we are doing the work of Christian mission. That when we engage positively with our community, we are just doing our bit to make the world we live in a little more like the kingdom of God. And sometimes the small actions, when we combine with others, turn into something huge. And we have an example right here in our congregation with Dave and Liz Beebe, who 40 years ago saw the sort of sorted ditch that used to be the Erie Canal and it being filled with garbage. And they said, you know, maybe we could clean that up and do something with it. And I'm sure they gathered friends, they talked about it, they got support, and, and they turned this dump in this forgotten piece of history into this amazing cultural asset and, and environmental asset in our community. They, they created the Erie Canal Park, and, and people, thousands of people go through there all the time. I've never been there, it's not busy, unless it's like 5 o'clock in the morning. But that just started with someone saying, I, I think that could be better. You know, and I'm sure when they started, they didn't think they were going to have what they have now. They just wanted it not to be a dump. And, and I think that that's what Christian mission is all about. When we are called by, by Jesus to make a difference in our world, Jesus isn't asking us to solve all of the problems of the world that so easily turn us into cynics or, or, or make us apathy, apathetic. But he's saying, look at the people I have put you amongst. Turn to your neighbors, the people on your streets, the people you see in the stores, the people in your community that you work with. How do you make their lives that much better? How can you engage with your neighbors in the life of your community to make it a place that, that matches more closely the vision of life that Jesus offers us? Jesus offers us this amazing, compelling vision about how the world can be about how people take care of each other, about how no one is pushed to the side, no one is oppressed, no one is, is needing to be imprisoned. All are loved and cared for, and no one goes without, and no one has so much that, that others have to suffer, that there is equity, there is love, there is a community in a sense that we are in it together and we really look out for one another. There's a great painting it's a Dutch painting, and it's an altar painting, and it's a picture of heaven, and it's a picture of hell. And the two pictures are exactly the same. It's a group of people sitting around a table eating soup. The problem is that their spoons are all four feet long. And in hell, everybody's trying to feed themselves with a four-foot-long spoon. And they can't, and so they're starving. And in heaven, everybody feeds one another. 
because it's easier to lift your spoon across the table to your neighbor and have them do the same than to try to eat with a four-foot spoon yourself. It's that difference of seeing our neighbor and seeing how we can make a difference in their lives that Christian vocation really lies. That's, that's the vision of the world that we can have. And the power of our Christian faith is that through the, the advocacy of the Holy Spirit, we can build that world. It's our choice to create. That we can live in the kingdom of God right now if we choose. So, so our faith is not necessarily an invitation to believe something as it is to do something to see the needs in the community around us and to figure out how, with the gifts that we've been given, we can make a difference in people's lives. How we can make our world that much better. That Jesus eats with the lost so that they can know that they're found. We are invited also to find the lost, to show them love and compassion and mercy, to build the kingdom of God here and now with the people around us. And if we do that, and if our message spreads through the power of the example of our Christian life, then those big problems, they take care of themselves. And it doesn't require an institution and it doesn't require, I don't know, a lot of organizational effort. It just requires us gathering together and doing it. That's it. That the vision of Jesus is realizable in the here and now, if we choose. Amen.